And this is Isabel, and you're now listening to the Top Rank Podcast. For any new listeners, um, our podcast is an exploratory research platform centered on people of diverse backgrounds who are driving and shaping the world around them. Today, we are very excited to be joined by Jesse Daniels, who is a professor of sociology at Hunter College here in New York City. Professor Daniels is an acclaimed expert on racism and its manifestations in the media and online. She's the author of several books, including White Lies, which is a look at white supremacist extremist groups printed uh, materials like their newsletters. And Cyber Racism um, is another book of hers, which examines how far right extremism has come alive um, online. Today, we're super excited to be in conversation with Jesse about her latest book titled Nice White Ladies the truth about white supremacy, our role in it, and how we can help dismantle it. So with all that being said, thanks so much, Jesse, for being here with us today on the Top Rank Podcast. And yeah, welcome to the show. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. It is our pleasure, and we're really looking forward to this conversation. We have a lot of questions because you get into so much in the book. It's it's extremely rich, and we really enjoy kind of co-reading over the past couple of weeks. Um, but I think that to start, just to lay the groundwork for the conversation, we would love to ask you if you could define the concept of, quote, nice white ladies, and also maybe talk a little bit about what prompted you to write a book about these people. Yeah, I mean, you know, in, in a way, the title is a kind of play on words, really. Um, nice white ladies is meant to suggest how all of us um, as white women think of ourselves and and it's also meant to th- help us think differently um, about who we've been taught to be in the world. So when we're, for example, socialized to become ladies and all the niceness implied or required in that, and we're raised to believe ourselves to be white and all the exclusion and domination implied and required in that, and we're taught to be nice above all else, what happens is we buy into a series of of lies that trap us into what I think of as a state of being that's less than fully human. So the the title is really meant to call into question all of that um, at the same, at you know, sort of in one catchphrase. So, um, and why did I want to write the book? Well, I mean, in some ways for me, it's a, it's a book that's been in process for you know, a couple of decades. My That early work, uh, Marcel mentioned in the intro, I wrote that book, White Lies. And actually part of what's in that book is how white supremacists in these early printed publications saw themselves. And that was a very gendered view. Like the idea of white men was very different than the ideas about white women. So I've been interested in this notion of white womanhood and sort of how it's part of the the matrix, if you will, of domination um, that, you know, keeps us all trapped. And I think there's something particular about white women that's really crucial to this whole equation. And so I was really trying to, to get to the bottom of that in a way. Yeah, I think that, you know, one 
it seems like one key aspect to you know the power of whiteness as this category, especially how it functions um, here in the U.S. Um, and that's you know most of the examples that you're you're focused on in the book is is how it's been you know crafted and invented through whether it's politics, laws, pop culture as you know somehow interchangeable with the idea of the standard human or the average American or the norm, right? From which everyone else is compared yeah. and measured. But I think we've also seen too, like in the span of like, you know, almost a decade that we've gone from these, you know, celebratory claims that the U.S. is somehow post-racial, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Which you all know is a lie. Um, to the resurgence of this, of a really of like vociferous like white nationalism that's really calling for whiteness to be recognized um, as a distinct identity with, you know, inherent rights to power and political and cultural, you know, status. So I think with all these kinds of changes in the conversation and politics around whiteness, I think it really shows us what you talk a lot about in the book is that like any other category, any other racial category, whiteness is made up and it has a history to it. And so I'm wondering if we could maybe like take a step back and get a sense and learn from you about like what, how, where does the concept of being a quote white person emerge from in the first place? Mm -hmm. And why do you think it's important that the uh, political and also historical dimensions of this made up category are understood, especially by, by white women? Yeah, I mean, it's such a great, um, you know, as a sociologist, it's like such an interesting time to be alive, right? I mean, you mentioned the, the recent historical past, like going back to just like 2008 and through, you know, 2015 or so. And there was, there was like smart people in mainstream publications saying that we were post-racial, you know, and that was really following the election of Barack Obama. And, you know, as you, as you point out in the question, and then fast forward to January 6th of 2021, and we've got, you know, um, white nationalists, white supremacists storming the Capitol. Um, so I think it's a really interesting time to be talking about whiteness. I mean, what we know about the, this idea that someone is white or the notion of whiteness is that it's quite new, historically speaking. Um, you know, Du Bois um, sort of famously said that the invention of whiteness is a very is a very recent thing, a modern thing. You know, it's the part of the modern era, and and you know what we know from the historical uh, research is that, and there's lots and lots of references on this, but I would point people to Nell Irvin Painter's um, The Invention of White People, which is really um, a, an incredible. Um, piece of research, but part of what she points out, right, is that the idea of whiteness followed um, the invention of, of racialized slavery, right, that it was meant, whiteness was meant as a justification for that economic system. But the other thing that we, we also know from, you know, a couple of decades now of research on whiteness is that it's not the same everywhere, you know, and so there are these variations in whiteness, and sometimes people use those variations to sort of hide behind them, you know, and sort of say, well, because there's so much distinction within whiteness that I'm not really white. You know, I have people come up to me and say that all the time after I give a talk or something. Well, I'm not really white. I'm, I'm European, as if those are distinct things. There's this great quote that I, I use in the book from my friend and colleague, Natasha Stovall, where she, she sort of plays with this idea of the variation within whiteness, where she writes, 
What is whiteness and which one farm to table white or cracker barrel white, you know, and then she goes on and has this whole riff on that, which I just love. And, and when I first read those words, I just thought, yeah, that's, that's really it. And then I kind of continued the riff and, and added gender to ask, you know, is it Martha Stewart white or Paula Dean white, Real Housewives of Orange County white or Honey Boo Boo of McIntyre, Georgia white, you know, so we have these variations in whiteness, but but the, the fact of whiteness, even though it is this construction, is that once you um, become attached to that category, once you begin to identify with it and use the benefits of it in our current society, it means that you're participating in a system that, that really hurts other people. And that's kind of what I was trying to get people to recognize about whiteness, that even though it's this constructed category, it has this variation within it. At the same time, when we identify with it, when we pursue it, when we're invested in it, it hurts other people. And that's the, the cycle of damage and hurt that I'm trying to interrupt with this book. I think it's really um, interesting how you um, are able to identify kind of like the mythology not only the the mythology of whiteness and of one and of white women in particular, but also how that is not a static story. It's one that's shifting constantly to accommodate the times and like certain political pressures and, and the contemporary moment. And I think that as Marcel pointed out, like we're at this period where actually that notion has shifted um, a lot over the past, you know. Uh, 10 to 15 years. And I think that something that we wanted to talk about in particular is this figure of the quote, Karen, who has become like sort of a meme, but also a critique of white womanhood in pop culture um, that in your words, like speaking of how damaging this is, really is meant to demonstrate and sort of teach how white women collectively are able to wield a deadly power. Um, and so I, I think that we'd like to hear more about when you talk about this deadliness, um, how can we make sense of the connection, particularly between the myth of white womanhood and actually violence, especially because the two of them are ostensibly so separate, but also so close? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I think it's actually part of the work that the niceness does is that it, it you know, kind of reinforces for us as white women that we're removed from violence or the threat of violence or, you know, any of the kind of messiness of wielding power. Um, but I think that, you know, to think, to really sort of understand this figure of the Karen and why it's become so popular and, you know, so resonant in the culture, I think, um, is, is because it really highlights the way that white women have used this deadly power in a, in a particular way you know, in relation to the, the, what academics call the carceral system, right? And, and by carceral system, we just mean the, the cops, um, you know, um, anybody connected with 911 system, right? When you, when you activate the 911 system, you're activating a whole um, set of um, structural mechanisms that are really designed for our protection for specifically for the protection of white women and then for the protection of white people sort of more generally one of the stories that i i talk a little bit about in the book is the 
story of Kitty Genovese, you know, who was a, a white woman um, who was killed in Kew Gardens, Queens in the 60s. And, and, you know, the way that that story was first reported was that there were a lot of people who heard her cries for help and didn't call the police. And so, um, you know, following her death, there was a real push to get the 911 system to be a national system. There wasn't a national 911 system before that. And so her murder, and actually she was killed by a black man. Um, so her murder was really kind of trotted out by a lot of key um, influencers at the time and, and, and thought leaders at the time to sort of galvanize the American public for this very expensive 911 system that eventually got got created. But but really in that promotion of 911 and the use of it, it really is geared to believe the stories of white women. Um, and that's, I think, part of what has, has happened with the Karen meme, right? We have all these instances of white women who are availing themselves of the 911 system to call the police on black people who are just going about their everyday lives, you know, setting up a barbecue in a, in a public park or taking a nap in an academic library or a host of other things um, that are not, you know, crimes and yet they're being uh, the police is being called and and so I think in a lot of ways the Karen meme is about white women who are used to using that kind of carceral power and with the advent of cell phones and social media are being called out for that behavior you know so the memes in a way as my colleague April Williams at University of Michigan has pointed out, the memes are a way of pushing back on this power of white womanhood. Um, but I also, you know, part of what I talk about in the book as well is that that meme can sort of veer over into misogyny too. It really, it really is context dependent, like who's using the meme and how are they using it? But in general, I see it as a, as a good thing really um, for sort of holding white women accountable. My mind is always drawn to, you know, when thinking about the the violence that is, you know, not often attributed to white womanhood, but has been so like instrumental in its construction and it's connected to media, especially. I think about Birth of a Nation, of course, it's mm -hmm. like such a canonical, like classic example of like one of the first <laughs> forms yeah. of like, you know, film mass media that we had oh. in this country that was really predicated on promoting this narrative of you know nice white womanhood that's somehow you know always in an, an impending um, danger from from otherness from from blackness yeah. from violence yeah. and um yeah and how that narrative continues to be to be propagated in across time but um just to think that that's kind of like the main plot line and storyline to like one of the first films in, yeah. in um in history i think speaks to the the power um, and like almost like seductive quality that this yeah. type of mythology has, you know, gripped, you know, this country and the, and the whole world. Um, yeah, I've also, yeah, been, yeah, I was just yeah, going to just insert a little bit about birth of a nation, you know, that it's based on a novel by Thomas Dixon called the Klansman with a spelled with C and, and part, you know, the central storyline in that is that there's a white woman who has been attacked by a black man. And so in despair over this attack, 
you know, and the black man, by the way, is played by a white guy in blackface. Um, but the the woman, the white woman at the center of the story is in such despair about this attack that she she commits suicide. She throws herself off a cliff and her mother, her white mother is also so distraught at the, you know, deflowering of her daughter that she too commits suicide. So there's this, there, there's a central, there's this way in which the innocence of white womanhood is really at the center of the American story in a way. And I think that that's part of why that film resonated with so many audiences at the time, including Woodrow Wilson, who was the sitting president who screened the film at the White House. So, I mean, I think it's a, uh, it's an important artifact culturally, but I think it's also, it sometimes gets missed that it's really a story about white womanhood at the center of that, of that film. Yeah, so thank you for offering that more details and context to, to that. Um, I also feel like too, you know, you mentioned this, this term, um, carceral feminism or carceral white womanhood. Um, and I feel like, you know, I mean, not just feel like, I think that we are kind of, you know, living in this moment where um, feminism as an idea, as a certain set of ideas has become really part of like a mainstream, like political conversation, like part of the pop culture zeitgeist, but, you know, in a way that, um, and we've seen in time and time again, whether it's with, you know, how Me Too has been sort of framed, really um, kind of framed in the interests of, of privileged white women. And we see how this type of, you know, um, way that women's rights have been defined and sort of how womanhood is even, you know, yeah, defined in the first place is, is connected to, um, you know, the privileged of white women in our society. And so in your book, you, you critique this notion of, of white feminism and kind of break it down into three distinct types, which I found really intriguing and powerful. And I was wondering if you could speak more about um, how you're thinking about white feminism. Um, you say that there's vagina feminism, carceral feminism, and corporate feminism. So it would be great to, I guess, hear more about what you think are some of the features and like failures of these iterations of, of feminism and perhaps like what could um, a feminist politics look like that's not steeped in um, these oppressive historical power dynamics. Yeah, thanks for that question. You know, it's funny, I'm gonna start with carceral because it's such a it's such a clunky academic word, but you know, it's a, I think for us in academia, it, it like has a meaning that I don't think often translates. <laughs> so for anybody who's listening that's not in academia, the way that I sometimes talk about it is Smith and Wesson feminism. <laughs> and in a, in a way, it's the feminism that I was raised with. You know, I, um, in a lot of ways, my father was much more of a feminist than my, than my mother was growing up. I grew up in Texas. And when I turned, um, 17, my father gave me a Smith and Wesson handgun. It was sort of his idea of how to, how I as a young woman going out in the world would protect myself, you know? And I think that there's a way in which um, the whole uh, carceral apparatus, and again, I mean, sort of everything from 911 to, you know, federal prison, sort of the whole gamut of the um, system of cops and police and jails and prisons and all that. Um, there's a way in which um, the second wave of the feminist movement, particularly here in the United States, 
kind of attached the goals that they wanted to accomplish in feminism to the carceral state. So in other words, the best way that some of these second wave feminists saw to achieve equality with, you know, let's call it what it is with white men was to avail themselves of the criminal justice system and, you know, kind of Smith and Wesson um, uh, notion of justice. But I, I, just in opposition to that, I would argue that it's not really, um, you know, feminism if what, you know, if the thing that you're accomplishing is locking up young black and brown boys, you know, um, like in the Central Park jogger case, you know, that was really heralded as a kind of accomplishment or achievement of a feminist prosecutor to lock those young men up. Um, But I think that we've got to rethink those kinds of those kinds of goals. And I don't, I don't think that they're in line with the kind of feminism that I want to see. Um, the other two types of feminism that I talk about are, are vagina feminism, which I sort of um, was riffing on um, uh, Eve Ensler, who is now going by just the letter V. Um, and But it's not only about Eve Ensler, but also about the kind of notion of essentialism. You know, it's this idea that, um, people, human beings with a certain body part are therefore, um, uh, you know, identify as women and therefore there is something about them that unifies us. And I think that, you know, in part because of the, you know, wonderful politics of our, our trans siblings, we've, we've begun to question this kind of, um, essentialism that's rooted in biology. Um, But there are also from, you know, a couple of decades ago, lots of, you know, vigorous critiques of a kind of essentialism when it comes to gender, because it leads us down a path of, you know, these binaries that ultimately lead to things like this terrible, you know, when men are from Mars and women are from Venus, thinking that they're, they exist in these two separate worlds. But I think that some of those underlying notions are still resonant in the culture, that people still kind of rely on them. And it's part of what has led to some of the controversy around TERFs, this, um, these people who are TERF is an acronym that stands for Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminists. And they're very, um, you know, they're, they're, they exclude trans people from feminism. And so I'm, I'm very much trying to, you know, argue against that as well. And then the third type of feminism I talk about is the, is the corporate feminism, the kind of Sheryl Sandberg lean into the corporate boardroom kind of feminism. And, and I think obviously that's not a feminism for everyone. You know, it's a feminism for kind of elite, um, uh, set of women, predominantly white, and from you know already privileged class backgrounds. I think to imagine a feminist politics that's not you know dragging these kinds of unfortunate um, theoretical histories with them. That what we've got to do is center you know an intersectional idea of feminism that comes to us from um, black women like. Uh, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw and Patricia Elf Collins and um, Bell Hooks and lots of others, Audre Lorde, um, and a, a liberatory feminism, you know, one that is post-colonial and looks beyond the, the colonial experience of, of feminism so that it helps us invest in imagining new and, and better worlds for all of us. Yeah, I think um, that 
Marcel and I have have talked a lot. I mean, even prior to even prior to reading this book, you know, as having come of age sort of with a kind of corporate feminism. Like I remember, I mean, I think we were in college or maybe late high school when Lean In came out. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really interesting to see. Although, let me date check that. Um, it's really interesting to see how that has expired sort of actually very, very quickly. (laughs) And there's been like a lot of criticism already because I think that it's been quite clear how these certain verticals, um, which are also, I think, in a way very easily branded or mythologized to organize people around are failing, as you're saying, the intersectional um, objectives, which would actually allow feminism to work for a variety of people and actually allow for a collective betterment. And something that I, that I really enjoyed in the book um, is your discussion actually of self-care, which I think fall, can fall actually into vagina feminism, but also into corporate feminism. Mm-hmm. And you note sort of like the, the important role of the, the quote array of healing products and services on offer in late capitalism known as self-care. Mm-hmm. Um, and you lay out how these things both provide an alternative to the kind of self-questioning about one's place in the world that would be necessary for like maybe actual self-care. Mm-hmm. And two, and this I think was like very relatable for me to read is like how these individual wellness paths also very much isolate you from society in general and and can uh, and can isolate you f- from your community especially in the way that they involve consumption mm-hmm. so we would would love to hear you speak more about how well like the wellness industry and particularly how it interacts with women as i think i mean i'm actually guessing but i feel pretty confident in in saying that women are are targeted more than men by the yeah. wellness industry, that um, it actually detracts from our ability to recognize our structural interdependence and detracts from from our ability to be intersectional. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much. I, it's funny this um, the chapter on wellness I think of as kind of in some ways it's sort of the heart of the book and it's been a really difficult one for a lot of people to to read and to take in the message of it. So, I mean, I think, which I find interesting, I'm not sure what to make of it, honestly, but um, I mean, I think that the wellness industry and, and really here, I'm not talking about, you know, drink an extra glass of water during the day and keep hydrated. I mean, I, I think there are all sorts of ways that we can look after ourselves. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that, but what I'm talking really about is the is the industry. Like there's a a multi-billion dollar and it's global, a global wellness industry. And it's packaged in a particular way that is really geared toward white women. And And you see this, it's funny trying to research this or come up with sort of evidence of this, but like every, I don't know, Uh, call it every six months or so, there's a news um, magazine article somewhere that says, you know, uh, wellness has a race problem. There aren't enough black women in wellness. And it's, that's not really my argument. You know, it's not that there aren't enough black women in the wellness industry, which, which is true. um, But it's that it's, it's looking at it from the sort of other angle, which is, but who is it for? <laughs> if it's if there aren't enough black women, then who is it really for? Well, it's really for us as white women. And part of what I think is happening in 
the wellness industry is that they have really tapped into a kind of underlying dis-ease, if you will, that we as white women are experiencing in this society. I mean, I think part of it has to do with recognizing, quite frankly, the, the sort of extent and reach of, you know, really abusive patriarchy. I mean, to have elected as president someone who bragged about assaulting women, grabbing their private parts, you know, and have you know, um, uh, millions of people in the country say, yeah, checks out, seems fine by me, you know, and vote for him anyway. I think that takes a toll. And then on top of it, uh, particularly as white women, we have this, we have this set of unearned advantage, right? If you look at, for example, the racial wealth gap, there's no reason that white families should, as a group, have all this extra wealth that Black and other families don't have in this country. And I think that that unearned advantage takes a toll because I think at some level, white women recognize we don't deserve this. We, it doesn't, it doesn't um, follow that we deserve all this extra um, advantage that we get in society. And so much of what um, you know, is on offer in the wellness industry is about reassuring people about their deservedness, right? <laughs> that, you know, the wellness industry reassures us at every turn that we're special, that our white lady needs deserve this kind of unquestioning care and attention. But the result, you know, the, the ultimate end of that is this kind of uber individualism, this, this increased individualism where we're alone and we're responsible for our own care and wellness. And it, it it's that that I see as the kind of ultimate, you know, like trick that this nice white ladyhood plays on us. You know, it says, you know, if we just, you know, believe in light and love, everything will turn out okay for us. But in fact, it traps us in this kind of gilded cage um, where we're just by ourselves, you know, with our bath salts and our detox candle. Yeah, I think that's, I think that is what about your analysis was like, was just really kind of radically striking to me because I've heard other criticisms, you know, of the wellness industry, of course, that focus more on like it being a bunch of gimmicks Mm -hmm. or also on, um, or also on using these kind of like syncretic new age Mm. spiritual, like corporate spirituality and also preying in sort of preying on people's feeling that there's something wrong with them, but never has that something wrong with them actually addressed that the thing that's wrong that I've read being the, the incredibly unnatural and unjust state of the world that is fundamentally affecting whether you're cognizant of it or not. Yeah. And I think like that was, that was really power. I think that's a, like an extremely powerful read that definitely is owed to understanding like how this has come about in this way, but I will let Marcel ask the next question. Because yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think, I think it's also like connected. What you're saying is connected to like where we want to go next is that, you know, a lot of what the wellness industry and basically anything that 
Gwyneth Paltrow sells on Goop as new and new agey is whether it's like chakra cleansing or yoga or gua sha or any you know type of healing modality you know we know is a lot of times it's like co-opted and appropriated from you know non-western cultures and kind of repackaged and um you know Gwyneth Paltrow and all these other people to get to take credit for for it as, as something new and innovative which I think speaks to you know, a really embedded longstanding political, um, yeah, political economic practice, um, you know, not just in the US, but across the world of this type of, you know, theft, right? This like racialized form of um, theft of, of resources, of capital, of intellectual, you know, property and the like, um, that I think really is one of the defining features of you know, how capitalism certainly operates um, in the US. And in your book, you kind of take, bring that, that, that type of analysis and framing into thinking about um, you know, black fishing, right? Or um, a host of controversial figures, whether it's the Kardashians or Rachel Doljal or mm-hmm. other scholars and public figures who have made news headlines um, for making claims to um, indigeneity or blackness or having maybe you know Latinx ancestry. Um, and in your book, you point out that there is a, actually a really long um, history to mm-hmm. this type of cultural and kind of embodied racialized um, almost masquerade. Um, we can think about blackface minstrelsy as just maybe one one historical um, point to start from. But I was curious if, if perhaps if we could kind of speak about this sort of enduring presence of of the relationship between this escapism and um, white womanhood and escapism, particularly through um, people who are embodying or at least trying, trying to attempt to perform a kind of like racial otherness and distance themselves from their, their whiteness. Yeah, yeah, it's so interesting, right? I hadn't actually hadn't planned on including this chapter um, when I, I had already submitted a whole draft of the book to my editor at Seal Press and, and um, the story about Jessica Krug broke in the news and I was like, you know what? let me go back and add a chapter on this. Um, and Jessica Krug, for those um, who may not remember, was a woman who was a, a professor, a tenured professor at, uh, I believe it was George Washington University in DC um, in Africana studies. And it was revealed um, that she was not uh, Afro-Latina as she had been proclaiming herself for a couple of decades, but was in fact a white woman who had been raised by white Jewish parents in the Midwest. Um, so yeah, so I was just fascinated by this because I, of course, had followed the whole controversy with Rachel Dolezal when that broke a few years ago. Um, and I just at first had thought, well, that's kind of a one-off. Maybe, you know, like maybe it's just that she was so taken with Black culture through people that she was connected to that she sort of, you know, uh, decided to identify in that way. And then when the Jessica Krug thing happened, I thought there's something else going on here that needs kind of deeper investigation. And then I I, um, found this other example of a woman who had written a memoir and claimed that she had been raised in South Central LA and then um, as, as a Native American 
and a foster child and was dealing drugs for the Crips when she was a kid. Um, and turns out none of that was true. She was white and raised in a, a posh suburb of Los Angeles. So I just, I put these three examples together to sort of talk about why, why there is this thing that happens, this phenomenon that happens. It's, it's almost, these are all white women that I've seen this happen with. And then the, we have this thing of black fishing, which is more, you mentioned the Kardashians. And just uh, this week, this month, the cover of Vogue magazine is um, Kim Kardashian um, saying, I chose myself <laughs> in her divorce from Kanye West. Um, so yeah, so what is going on with these women? Well, I think in some ways, you know, I think certainly with the Kardashians, there's a clearly a financial incentive, right? The Kardashian children, the, the daughters have all um, made a strategy out of taking um, elements of black culture and then appropriating those for a wider and predominantly white audience and have proven time and time again that there's a real market for that, right? So there's a real, um, like one of the Kardashian daughters, I can't remember which one now, is an actual billionaire with a B because of the same uh, kind of business strategy that she has. Um, so that, that makes a certain kind of sense. Um, and there's a long history of that, of sort of appropriating black and indigenous and Latinx cultures and, and making a profit off of them. But there's something else going on with these other cases that I look at, which is more uh, psychological, you know, it's more interpersonal, there's something going on. And, and my theory, again, you know, it's hard to, you know, have definitive evidence. But my argument here is that there are that for these women in these particular um, fields, in memoir writing, in cultural work, in academia, that there's a way in which our identity and our work is supposed to match, right? If you're doing work on race, you should be, according to, I'll just take my own world, to the academy, you should be a minoritized person, right? You should be someone who is Black or Latinx or Asian American, right? Someone who comes from a minority background. That's the thinking. Um, and I think for some white women, the ones that I, these examples that I talk about, I think for some white women, once they begin to sort of realize the operation of white supremacy and that they as white women are part of the smooth operation of white supremacy, that it becomes so uncomfortable for them, just so untenable to stay in that identity of being a white woman, that they look for escape hatches, right? Like some other way to be in the world that's not that, <laughs> that's not, I'm part of the oppressor class, you know? And so I think that there's a way in which um, that, escape into another identity is a, a release from the discomfort of being a white woman. I wonder if there is, like, is there a parallel pattern in men? Because I think that something, I mean, this is sort of a rhetorical question, but relating to our next question actually is like, what is exactly so noxious, you know, aside from, um, aside from feeling part of being this, this apparatus that is like incredibly negative 
violent and part of this like um, genocidal history. I think on the other side of that, there's this moral imperative of, of niceness and also happiness. Yeah. And yeah. we're really curious about like how that is also like poisonous and oppressive yeah. and as well, and how that also, you know, fits into this desire to escape that expectation. But also, I mean, is this, is this gendered and racialized affect specific to the American cultural context? Is it specific to, to, to women or are there other places that, that you've seen it play out? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great set of questions. And I really, I mean, I, I can just sort of speculate based on what I've, when I've read and seen and leave it to some other scholar to do, you know, really rigorous empirical work on this. I mean, I think that, I, I don't think it's, it's peculiar to the American context. I think it's actually tied to colonialism. And there's a, there's a great book by Vron Ware, um, uh, which I'm going to forget the title of, but she does a great, uh, it's called Beyond the Pale. Um, Vron Ware's book, Beyond the Pale, does a great job of looking at the way that the protection of white women. And so in her case, she's looking at the British context and sort of how the British empire was built globally. Um, and, and she really, you know, maps out the way that, that the protection of white colonial women was, was actually written into the laws in, in different colonial states. Um, so that, so that um, the protection of white women was very much tied to that, that colonial project. And, and back to your question about niceness, I really do think that there's a way in which that is, is incredibly gendered, right? So I, I don't see, um, there are ways in which white men are um, advocating and pushing for white supremacy in ways that are, that are also gendered, but they don't always have this affective valence of niceness, right? There could be, um, you know, ways that people talk about strength or, um, you know, taking back our country in, in various ways that I think tend to be more masculine. And the, that kind of, I think of it as big, you know, the big chest out kind of body language, you know. And for us as white women, the socialization is really around, you know, being nice at all costs. That was certainly the way that I was raised. And, um, and you see it in, in other, other figures, like, um, you know, there was this incident with Ellen DeGeneres um, um, sitting in the, in the box seat with George W. Bush at a, at a recent sporting event. And, and when people were criticizing her for, for keeping company with Bush um, Jr., you know, because many people regard him as a, as a war criminal, you know, she came back with basically a defense of niceness, that we should all be nice to each other, and that that's her, um, you know, that's kind of her main value. And I, and I think that, you know, Ellen DeGeneres, like me, was raised in the South. She grew up in New Orleans. And I do think that there's a way in which that socialization to niceness is, you know, is this top value that, that's conveyed to us um, as we're becoming uh, white ladies. And, um, and I think it covers over a lot of evil. You know, I think that the smooth operation of white supremacy depends on us just being nice and playing along with it. And I think the time for that is really, is really up. The other thing, I mean, you mentioned happiness, and I want to, um, you know, shout out the work of 
the British scholar Sarah Ahmed, who's talked about the the promise of happiness. And I really see these two ideas of niceness and happiness as, as linked, especially for us as, as white women. And I think that the idea in white womanhood is that if you're nice, if you don't create trouble, if you go along with these systems that are already in place, then the reward that awaits you is happiness, right? If you're nice, then you'll be happy. And Sarah Ahmed really, you know, explodes that when she when she writes that those of us who are outside of these normative constructions, those of us who are immigrants, those of us who are queer, those of us, you know, who are women um, that don't subscribe to this kind of view of nice white ladyhood, we we don't get that promise of happiness, but there's something better, right? There's something better than this kind of false promise of happiness, which is real joy and connection to other people without causing them harm. And that's kind of where I'm trying to lead us in this book. Yeah. And I also can't help but, you know, think about the type of other sort of racialized tropes that are contrasted with nice, nice white ladyhood, mm-hmm. you know, the angry black woman, right. Yes. The, the spicy, exactly. maybe like irate, right. like Latina, right. Or even thinking right. about, um, Jonathan Metzl's book. I'm forgetting the, the title of now. Dying Dr. of whiteness. Dying of Whiteness, and also his other book where he talks about this um, psychiatric industry. Oh, protest and psychosis. Pro- protest psychosis. And, you know, how, um, you know, the pharmaceutical industry played a role in marketing these type of like psychotropic drugs in an attempt to sort of quell the, the, the anger or the, the you know, the, the protest spirit of, of, of black men and black people. And so how that, that, that kind of idea of like affect and race and gender has been, has really shaped um, a lot of, a lot of different fields. And again, we're seeing, you know, I'm just thinking about the angry of black woman trope that has been such a, I think just as powerful of a, of a, you know, archetype as, as the nice white lady, how they're really constructed in this type of like classic binary, like opposition to one another. Um, which is, you know, thinking, keeps me thinking about how much of a centuries old um, mess of chaos that we're in with these racialized systems of power that we have to navigate and exist in. Um, and, you know, thinking about, you know, what is our way forward? What is our way out, out of and through these, these systems? It's like, I can imagine keep many people, including myself up at night. Um, and, I was really struck by towards the end of the book, you, you, you talk about, you reflect on this idea of wanting to be part of a a world and a future where whiteness matters less and thinking about how to reconceptualize um, and maybe even uh, remove um, yourself and from, from this idea of whiteness in particular. And I, was hoping that we could to speak a bit more about uh, what you mean by this. Like, what does it mean to to divest um, from whiteness, from a, from um, an identity and a concept that that still remains so um, elemental to how our, our society functions? And um, I guess connected to that too, um, how can white people be, you know, self reflective? I know there's a lot of since you know summer of 2020 right it seems like all white people have bought like 10 million books and are you really self-reflecting about what it means to be to, yeah. to be white as a racialized identity and as right. a form of power but how can white people do that work 
um, but not kind of get subsumed in either racial essentialism or recentering and reessentializing their whiteness as this, as this real important pillar of the self when we know how much destruction um, that idea has has wrought and continues to to cause in our in our world. Yeah, it's a it's a great set of questions, and it's uh, I appreciate you raising that. I think that um, for me, a future in which whiteness matters less um, is one in which which being raised in this category of whiteness doesn't overdetermine so many outcomes. Like right now, being raised white really sets a path in terms of wealth. It really sets your path in terms of likelihood of dying from police violence. So many other things, right? It, whiteness in a way overdetermines um, so many different outcomes. And I would really just prefer to live in a world where that isn't the case anymore. And I, I really think that we have a sort of... Um, kind of subconscious understanding that that's true, those of us who are in this category of whiteness. And it's part of what leads to, um, you know, disease and discomfort. And so I think that getting to a future where whiteness matters less is going to be better for everyone. So what does it mean to divest from whiteness? I mean, I use this language of divesting really intentionally. So my first... um, kind of as a, as a young adult political memory was becoming involved in uh, protests against the apartheid regime in South Africa on my college campus at University of Texas at Austin. Um, and that language of divesting from a, apartheid, like we, some of the signs we held up just said divest, right? And people understood that that meant that you, you didn't spend money on, uh, with companies that still did business with South Africa. You didn't go on vacation to South Africa. And there was a point in the movement where we started pressuring um, celebrity entertainers to not go to uh, a particular resort in South Africa known as Sun City. Um, And and that ultimately was a really effective uh, strategy for ending the apartheid regime in South Africa. So I was just wondering, you know, like what, would the analogous movement be like here? How could we divest from whiteness? And some of the suggestions that I have in the conclusion of the book are are really concrete steps about how to do that. Like, you know, taking account of sort of where we spend our time, money, and energy are the places where we're showing up, are those white dominated spaces and institutions and organizations? And if so, can we either one, work to change them within, or can we, you know, remove our time, energy, and money from those places and invest in places that are, that are owned by indigenous people, by black people, by Latinx people, right? That's what I mean by divesting from whiteness. And there's also a kind of psychological part of it too, which is, you know, not seeing ourselves as investing in whiteness as an identity. You know, there's this, we mentioned earlier, Jonathan Metzl's wonderful book, Dying of Whiteness. And one of the things, one of the tremendous insights from that research is that there are ways in which white people become, uh, their white identity becomes attached to a particular policy. So like gun ownership, for example, and we've seen a lot of this around COVID, like 
um, being made to wear a mask is somehow makes me unfree as a white person, right? And I think that divesting in whiteness is also figuring out the places where we're invested in other ideas or other policies that are not serving us well, not serving us, you know, those of us who are raised to be white and and the whole collective of everybody. Um, so I think that the that part of what that means is divesting from the the policies that reinforce um, whiteness. I think that's that's the real key to divesting from whiteness. Yeah, I think that I think thinking about it in the in on a level of policy is really um, is is like a really helpful analysis because it 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 aids in understanding how race is a political construct and therefore policy is necessary for maintaining it. Mm -hmm. um, that was definitely a takeaway, a takeaway for me. And I think for a last, for a last question, as we're coming up on our hour, mm -hmm. um, we wanted to sort of, to bring this back to, to you. And this was also relatable for me as somebody with a white parent and who identifies as white and looks white. Your book is, de is, is deeply personal because you're writing about a racial experience that you are also part of and criticizing it, which is a very difficult thing to do. And we wanted to ask you if what you have learned about yourself in the process of writing this book. Yeah, great, great question. Um, yeah, I mean, so, so much, it's hard to know. It's hard to know where to, to start. I think, um, I think one of the things I, I would say in terms of what I learned in writing the book is that, you know, just how, unconscious so much of whiteness is um you know still for me personally so one of the one of the stories i tell in the book which which still has has really affected me is while i was working on this book i um i actually had a dream um and the dream doesn't matter but but as i was waking from the dream i could sort of hear my mother's voice saying well you bitch if you were hung with a new rope wouldn't you and I, it was just, it was like so funny in a way because I hadn't thought of or heard that phrase in, you know, 25, 30 years since I left Texas, but it also gave me pause. Like what, why, <laughs> why would my mother say that to me? And I realized that, that the, the, you know, like so many Texas phrases, it was a more elaborate way of saying something very plain, which was, I was being ungrateful. That's the point of that phrase. You'd bitch if you were hung with a new rope, but it also like when I, when I heard it again in my late fifties, I was like, oh, the rope, like I'm supposed to be grateful for getting hung with a new rope. Like, what is that? And I just realized that that logic, like what that phrase was really saying was, was a reference to lynching. And I was just, I was really just bowled over by it. You know, that, I mean, I've been studying race and in particular lynching for last 25 or 30 years, but I never thought about that phrase until, you know, I had that dream and I was writing this book. The other thing, though, I would say about, about what I learned about myself in this process was actually that, you know, that I can be brave in facing this stuff and that I'm not a unicorn. Like I'm not so uh, different or unusual from other white women that we can all be brave in facing these truths about. Jesse Daniels, thank you so much for making the time to speak with us on the Top Brain Podcast today. Yeah, I really my great pleasure. It. It's great talking with you. And if 
folks listening want to follow your work, um, follow you, I know you're active on social media. Do you want to just plug anything, any way people can stay in touch with you, things like sure. that? Sure. Yeah. Um, I think Twitter is usually the way that people find me and I'm on there as Jesse NYC. It's J-E-S-S-I-E N-Y-C. And I also have a, a newsletter. It's pretty low volume, but uh, for people who are interested in the book, I'm uh, also developing a course, an online course for um uh, actually geared for social workers. Um, so that'll be coming out later this year. So I have a newsletter on my site, jessedaniels.net. If you want to sign up for that newsletter and get updates about the course course. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Yeah. I'm looking forward to yeah keeping in touch. That's Thanks great. for your time again. Once again, Thank you so much. And, um, until next time. Love in your eyes.